Welcome back to Streamageddon, the official podcast sponsor of jamming one streaming service right inside another. It's like a turducken, but instead of a lethal amount of poultry, it's a lethal amount of synergy. And speaking of lethal synergy, later this episode, we're going to discuss one of our favorite killer shows, Fargo which just kicked off its fifth season on Disney's FX, streaming on Disney's Hulu, and yes, as of last week, if the stars align for you, it's also streaming on Disney's Disney+. Plus. We'll tell you how that works, what the new Disney-Hulu hybrid looks like, and a whole lot of hot takes on Disney's magical world of synergy. Plus, if you're new to Fargo, we're going to recommend our favorite seasons. It's an anthology, so you can start anywhere. And it's an excellent holiday binge. There's snow, there's family, and there's plenty of people who want to murder each other. But first, I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined by the John Hamm to my Juno Temple, Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? Wow, I'm doing great. I am so happy to be compared to John Hamm, even at his most evil. Always. You are always the John Hamm of my life, for better and for worse. And speaking of both better and worse, this episode is all about Disney. Disney, Disney, Disney. I hope you're a Disney gay or not. I really have no opinion either way, because this episode, we're going to probe every corner of Disney's massive media empire, which is kind of congealing into a holiday-like jello. Yeah, there's. it's one of those jellos, it's like an aspic that your grandma made in the 50s with like things floating in it. It's not just your typical jello that you might make at home from a little packet. No, this one has like seafood, surprisingly. Yes, this is a jello that your grandmother would refer to as a salad. And you just kind of look at it and go, <laughs> I, you know, there might be salad in it, but I'm pretty sure it's jello. And it's going to wiggle with a lot of interesting stuff. Much like we're ready to shake things up. Let's see what I almost did there with a little bit of follow up. And uh, we're just going to barrel right into some follow up about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're always just loving to talk about the MCU, if you dare to call it that. And uh, this headline, you know, calls back to something we've discussed. What is Marvel to do to get out of its uh, doldrums, let's say? And one of the ideas pitched a few weeks ago was, oh, maybe they'll bring back Iron Man, even though, one, they killed him off, spoiler alert for something everyone knows, and two, Robert Downey Jr. has a different contract than everyone else in the MCU, and to bring him back, they would have to pay him more than anyone on the face of the Earth. And, shocker, Diane, are they going to bring back Iron Man? Nah. Nope! Doesn't seem like it. (laughs) Kevin Feige says, nope. That's correct. Kevin Feige uh, said in, in, in a Vanity Fair profile of Robert Downey Jr., the most like shoehorned in way to release this news without openly just making a press release that says, nah, man. Uh, he said, we are going to keep that moment and not touch that moment again in reference to Iron Man dying, basically. And what a diplomatic way to say, no... Honestly, I don't want to give them too much guff about this because this is the right choice artistically. So, like, good job, Kevin. Good job, Kevin. And, you know, 
Kevin is not the only big creative force in Disney's many universes, because there's another universe. You might even call it a galaxy. You might even say it's far, far away. And it is, of course, the Star Wars side of the Disney empire. Again, see what I almost did there. And mm -hmm. the Star Wars community is, let's say, excited, I think, at the news that Dave Filoni... Dave Filoni, the creator of The Mandalorian, the creator of The Clone Wars, the creator, unfortunately, of Ahsoka, he is being promoted to a new Feige-esque role that will make him the creative head of Star Wars and Lucasfilms, but not actually the head of Lucasfilms, which unfortunately will remain Kathleen Kennedy. You know what? I think that Star Wars has needed a new um, infusion of energy and perspective. So I'm pretty excited about this appointment. I, I have to say, they, they need somebody there. And while I uh, certainly have some bones to pick with Ahsoka, perhaps space whale bones to pick with Ahsoka, I, <laughs> I have to say, people who know the Clone Wars, uh, which again, Dave Filoni created, uh, they loved what he did to take that cartoon world and bring it to physical life. E even though I think it was impenetrable to someone who was not already deep in that that universe that he'd, he'd already crafted. But on, on the flip side, I am a big Mandalorian apologist. I love what they did in the last season of The Mandalorian. I stand alone, apparently, in feeling that way. And in general, I like Dave Filoni as the choice if they are going to make this choice. And honestly, my reaction was, wait a second, who's been in charge up until now? Right. I mean, I would assume that it's Kathy Kennedy, but uh, then what is she doing now, I guess, is my question. Maybe her position will become less creatively focused and more about logistics i'm not sure that um, is the the suggestion that comes out of all of this they're uh naming uh, feloni the chief creative officer of lucasfilm mm -hmm. but she she kathleen will continue to lead lucasfilm as the president of the division and and sure if that gives dave feloni the freedom to focus on the creative side while she deals with the kind of large disney machinations, financial business, theme parks, whatever. Uh, okay, maybe that is a good division of labor, actually. Yeah, maybe she's in charge of the synergy, Chris. We need a chief synergy officer in every single Disney department at this point, and for good reason, as we are going to continue to discuss. Just you wait. Speaking of things you're going to have to wait just a little bit for, Pixar just, again, racing through the Disney empire. Pixar, famously, not doing so hot these days. And one of the reasons people have cited for this is that they released a, a string of movies that are critically acclaimed for the most part direct to Disney Plus during the height of the pandemic. And since then, they've had trouble getting people back into movie theaters for Pixar movies. And I think there are a variety of forces at work here. Forces, see what I almost did there. But uh, Disney has an idea. They're like, hey, what if you could see those movies in theaters after all? And so coming in early 2024, you can see Soul, Turning Red, and Luca in theaters, all three of them for the first time, 
and they are spaced out a bit to give you a, a little motivation to come back to the movies. So Soul premieres on January 12th, Turning Red premieres on February 9th, and Luca premieres on March 22nd. And the way they're billing this, I have a feeling there will be zero overlap in these theatrical runs. That essentially what Disney is doing is telling the, the theater owners, we're going to book out about three months and we're just going to rotate in these Pixar movies during that three-month stretch. And, and each one, in classic Pixar fashion, will be paired with a delightful Pixar short. So even if you've already watched these movies on Disney+, there's a little motivation to go out and see them again. I think this is a smart play for families. Um, even if these don't become like, you know, the head of the leader of the box office for those weekends, which I don't imagine that they will. Um, it's somewhere that you can, you know, bring the kids for a weekend. Uh, maybe they've even already seen it. Doesn't matter. They haven't seen it this way yet. Exactly. It, it's also then, you know, if it gets some good word of mouth, it's further marketing to go watch it again on Disney+. Plus. Right. It rebuilds word of mouth. It is a, a kind of doldrums time at the box office. January, mm -hmm. February often are. And then you add on the fact that this is the beginning of the strike stretch where there are many things that are just delayed because they could not finish filming them during the strike. And so this is a great way to just kind of pad out some time at the box office. Keep your partners in the theater side very happy or moderately happy with some stuff to show and give families an excuse to hopefully go back to the theaters and hopefully rebuild the habit of treating a Pixar movie like an event you go to the theater for. And while Pixar movies are often star-studded in terms of their voice casts, uh, you don't necessarily need to do a ton of promotion in terms of actors going on late night shows or whatever to get a Pixar movie across the brand is Pixar. That's what you're selling. Um, so I think that on the marketing side, this is also pretty cheap for them. Yeah. And of course, they can push some of that marketing through Disney Plus and so many other venues that we will discuss. Uh, but in order to get to that discussion, we have to land this synergy plane on network television, where it all sort of began. Because ABC... ABC, you remember them, they are looking to fill their own January gap uh, because all the sitcoms and shows will not come back until February, basically. Again, thanks in part, in part to the strike. So how do you fill that gap? Well, as we discussed last week, you have The Golden Bachelor get married on TV. That fills a week. What do you do after that? Well, one option is you raid the Hulu vault, and that is why season one of Only Murders in the Building will be airing in its entirety on ABC this January, beginning on January 2nd and ending on January 23rd. How can they do that so quickly, you would ask? Because they're going to blow through it at two episodes a week, every week, until you've just solved the murder of Tim Kono for the first time again. This is a great plan to me. I think that that is exactly how much uh, Only Murders I need in a week. Honestly, you know? yes. It is a classic show where I'm like, two is good. I want to watch two at a time. I do. Yeah. And it's uh, got that sort of wide appeal that to me makes great sense for network in the sense that you have older cast members, you have Selena Gomez for the youngins. And um, it's it's a fun little mystery, but it's not so intensive a mystery that like if you missed an episode or you missed 15 minutes because you were just wrapping up dinner, 
you're not going to be so lost. And if you if you somehow missed a week, you could, in theory, fill in the gap on Hulu. If you fall in love with it, of course, you can watch it on Hulu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go keep watching. Wait till you get to the Merrill. The, the Merrill of it all. Uh, but actually, I think that brings an interesting point. Some people are asking the question, why season one, an, a season of television that aired years ago... And, of course, the answer is they're playing to people who've never seen any of Only Murders in the Building. So, of course, it has to be season one. It's the most accessible ground floor, get on and see if you enjoy the ride season of the show. Yeah, I also don't. What's what's to lose with season one? Nothing. Why not? Yeah. If it was the last season, people could still Google what happened or watch episodes out of order on Hulu. It doesn't make a difference at that point. I do think this is very favorable compared to some of the other network streaming outings where it's just the first two episodes or, you know, a sampler platter of what's on Peacock, but not all of it. The only one that made, like, to me, even more financial sense than this was showing Yellowstone on CBS. Like, this is up there with that for me where I'm like... Oh, of course. What a great choice. I can't believe you haven't done this yet. Yeah, actually, all credit where credit is due. CBS paved the way for this, in part out of a desperate ploy because they could not put Yellowstone on Paramount Plus because Peacock <laughs> bought those rights. But NBC did not have the linear rights and that mm, juicy rights drama. I'll never get sick of it. No, never. But you know what else I will never get sick of? And this, my friends, is where we transition into a little bit of story time of true, pure, unadulterated Disney synergy. Because I'm going to say it, I love me some synergy. And I happen to love it in the most unexpected places, which is why I'm going to tell you about my Wheel of Fortune habit. I like to watch wheel of fortune when i am home on a weekday evening and because i i work frequently on weekends i often am home on a weekday evening and that is how i can tell you about a a series of synergy experiences i have had in just a handful of episodes of wheel i want to be clear i am not giving you my diary of months of wheel this is like in three episodes of wheel of fortune i have seen the following an ad for disney world An ad for Disney's Wish, the Disney animated film in theaters currently. An ad for Disney Plus's The Santa Claus, which I am shocked to learn has a second season on Disney Plus. An ad for Disney's Freeform's 25 Days of Christmas, which is, of course, where Freeform just airs a lot of Christmas movies because that's all Freeform has left. Uh, I've also seen an ad to subscribe to National Geographic magazine, which is owned by Nat Geo, which is a division of Disney. I've also seen an ad for FX's Fargo, streaming next day on Hulu. I've seen an ad for Disney Cruises. I saw a contestant this week win a a vacation to Disney's Oahu Resort. And thanks to the Secret Santa theme of their Holiday Wheel episodes, I've just seen full-blown Mickey and Minnie Mouse in full costume on stage with Pat Sajak and Vanna White, while contestants happily admit that they had their honeymoon in Disney World. This is the magical world of Disney Synergy. I love it. Welcome, Chris. Um, I am prepared to tell you that I am excellent 
at Wheel of Fortune. So just anytime you want to go head to head, let's find a way. Bring it the on. The challenge is on. I'm not a huge Wheel fan. Like, I don't watch it habitually. But I am a Jeopardy stan. And it, Jeopardy is usually just before Wheel of Fortune. So I usually catch the beginning of it. And I really does come to mind how much Wheel of Fortune is just a giant ad. But then really, I think what you've pointed out so helpfully is that everything on ABC right now is just an ad for another Disney property. Absolutely. I uh, etched in my memory for some reason is an episode of the now canceled Home Economics that uh, mm -hmm. would frequently air immediately after Abbott Elementary. So I wound up accidentally watching a lot of Home Economics. And one of their season premieres was just the, the plot was they go to Disney World. That was the plot. There were whole scenes in the Star Wars part of Disney World. There was an entire recreation of the Luke, I am your father lightsaber battle between two adult brothers. Why? Not because it had anything to do with the plot of home economics, I can tell you that. But it did make going to Disney World with your diverse, uh, bickering family look like a lot of fun. You know what this has really clarified for me? I was thinking about this move where Hulu is coming to Disney Plus, which we'll discuss more soon, but why isn't Disney Plus coming to Hulu? Why is Hulu coming to Disney Plus? And I think it really brings home the idea that Disney is all about promoting other Disney products. And so in that sense, what you need to do is send everything back to the Disney. You can't say, oh no, now, now our main thing is Hulu and Disney is a branch of that. No, no, no. Hulu can be within Disney, but Disney is always going to be the king, even if you might be bringing general audiences to something that they think, oh, this isn't for me, this is for kids. What they want to remind you of is that Disney is for everyone and it is every single part of your life that you can just spend money on their corporation. You can just keep spending forever. That's the magic of Disney. But but I also Infinite. think you, you've hit on the, the core of Disney is what uh, was frequently referred to as the flywheel. Walt, Walt saw it this way. Why make theme parks? Because the theme parks are a destination that they can promote in their television and film, and at the time, like, Disney Magazine and the Mickey Mouse Club, and then you go and you spend money at the theme parks, and the theme parks reinforce your love of those characters and the brand. So then you go back and you go to see the movie. You buy the VHS tape. Then they put the movies in the vault. Then they take them out of the vault, and you panic and buy five copies of the Little Mermaid on DVD. That is the flywheel that that has actually, when you look at the grand scheme of things, the kind of long arc of Disney history here, they've done a really good job of evolving it to meet the times because so much of the Disney flywheel when we were kids was you know, you've got to get the, the movies on home video before they go in the vault. You've got to subscribe to, like, the Disney Kids magazine and then go to Disney World and plan your trip out in advance. And some of those things are still there, like going to Disney World, but some of those things are completely gone. The Disney Vault doesn't exist anymore. You can stream basically every one of those movies on demand on Disney Plus now. So what did they replace those parts of the flywheel with? Well, adult entertainment, MCU, Star Wars, and now 
the giant umbrella of Hulu. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just all these products that go along with those things, like maybe you aren't going to buy like Mickey Mouse ears anymore, but they're, but Instead, you're going to buy a lightsaber or a costume where you dress up as Black Widow for Halloween. Like they really have expanded it beyond being so much just children's entertainment with these acquisitions. But at the same time, so much of it seems to be like caught in these franchises. I wonder for something like Disney Plus, what they were going to do to branch out beyond the franchises. And I think Hulu is the perfect answer for that. Yeah, I agree, especially with Hulu being the home to some successful series at this point, Only Murders, The Handmaid's Tale. These these are recognizable names to a lot of people, even if they haven't seen them. And then also, all of FX, which has really become Disney's adult television brand. They obviously have the adult um, movie brands, let's say, with Marvel and Star Wars, and they have streaming TV properties. But when Disney took over the 20th Century Fox TV uh, IP, when they bought 20th Century minus the Fox, they got a lot of adult television shows with deep catalogs, such as Fargo, which is uh, was at some time, overseas at least, available on Netflix, and is now very much oh no, it's part of the Disney universe. And the rollout isn't totally there yet, as we're going to talk about. But the direction is very clear. Imagine telling a viewer in 1996 who had just seen Fargo, which was revolutionary in so many ways. It shocked viewers. It electrified viewers. Imagine telling them, wait 20 years and you can watch it on Disney. I, and you just wouldn't believe it. No, no. You you would actually maybe scream and go, what went wrong? And the answer is a lot of things went wrong. But this is something that went right. And, and I, I'm kind of bullish on it, despite the many caveats we'll get into shortly. As am I. Yeah, I, I think that this is a really smart move. I mean, I'm, I'm always bullish about Fargo. But yes, agreed. Ag- agreed all around. And uh, I I thank you for going on my Wheel of Fortune journey with me. It is just, it is the most condensed example of the Disney synergy. Because Disney is good at this across so many of their shows. The way Jimmy Kimmel is just a, a feeder mechanism for other ABC and Disney content is beautiful. The man is a public servant. But... The fact that in, like, 23 minutes of game show, they can cram in, like, every single brand under the sun, basically. That's really impressive. I just can't wait for the day when someone's big prize is going to be a Fargo-branded wood chipper. Yes! Yes! And I, oh man, that makes me want to audition for Wheel of Fortune more than anything on Earth. But I, I, I have to let go of that dream momentarily and move on to a, another interesting corner of Disney's synergy expansion, let's say. Uh, this is on Disney+. Plus. It is a show that you have perhaps heard of but would not associate with Disney until now. Diane, are you a Doctor Who fan? I'm really not, but I <laughs> The look on get your face it. said, I'm really not, but I'm trying to find a nice way to say that. Yeah, it's fine. You don't have to be. 
When I was living in Ireland, I watched a few reruns of the old UK series. And because it was so corny and over the top, I got that version. I was like, oh, okay, I get this. Some of the newer ones, when people are like, this is really good and you'll like it. I was, I assumed that they meant that it was really good and I'd like it. But I think what they meant was this is corny and silly and fun. And if you just like let yourself enjoy it, it's a grand time, which, which is, is a fair thing to say about Doctor Who. And there is nothing wrong with feeling the way you feel about Doctor Who. I am not. Do you love it? I, well, I'm not a, a Doctor Who completionist by any stretch of the imagination. The news here, and I'll tell you how I feel, is that Doctor Who, a, a storied series, if you've somehow never heard of it, it dates back to the 60s on the BBC, and it is most closely associated with the BBC because it is a long-standing BBC production about British sci-fi shenanigans involving uh, an alien time traveler who looks like a human, because again, 60s, that's all you could really do with your special effects budget, and uh, he flies around time and space in a blue police box, which, for the uninitiated, is some kind of retro phone booth from England that you use to call the police. And for those of you under 30, a phone booth was a cell phone that was glued to the ground, and you had to walk into and put a coin in to use. No touchscreen. It's where Superman became Clark Kent. So true. Uh, Unless it's the Zack Snyder Superman, in which case he became Clark Kent in a dark, moody, black and white mantra scene or something. Oh, brother. Indeed. But but back to Doctor Who, who's got the good use of the phone booth. Uh, Doctor Who, in need of uh, cash infusion, because the BBC is cash-strapped, even perhaps more so than PBS in our country somehow. Baffling, I know. Uh, but in order to find a way to kind of rejuvenate their production budget and their international reach, it's a popular show, the BBC decided to partner with Disney. And now, the new season that premieres in 2024 with the 15th Doctor, it would be the 15th actor, uh, with a caveat, playing the Doctor, because the gimmick of the show that allows it to run for so long is that the Doctor regenerates, so they can change actors at any time. And each one has a different personality, but the same essential personality. They're the same Doctor at heart. The 15th Doctor, Shuti Gatwa from uh, uh, Sex Education, and one of the best Kens of all the Barbie oh, Kens. Oh, yes. Uh, that premieres uh, starting next year and will stream everywhere in the world except the UK on Disney+. Plus. On In the UK, it is still a BBC original where it will be available on BBC iPlayer for UK people. But everywhere else, Doctor Who is now a Disney owned property and disney is making a big push with that because one it's again another corner of the kind of nerd fandom that they have with star wars and they have with the mcu but the the venn diagram of that is not a perfect circle there are plenty of doctor who fans who are not really superhero people or who prefer the kind of corny era of sci-fi that Doctor Who still embodies very well and Star Wars has kind of veered away from in in favor of flashier, more modern takes on sci-fi, let's say. Uh, So that's the gimmick here. That's the game here for Disney and the BBC. Uh, I personally am intrigued for a lot of reasons, uh, synergy related, but also because the way they're kicking this off is by bringing back 
my personal favorite doctor, the 10th doctor, now the 14th doctor, David Tennant, who you've probably heard of. He is a decently known British actor, Scottish actor. From Netflix's Marvel series, he yes. was, he was the baddie in Season Jessica one of Jones? Jessica Jones. The best season yeah. of Jessica Jones. Maybe the best season of any Marvel show. We have to investigate that next year. Uh, but uh, he is fantastic, and he has returned. He was the Doctor back in, like, 2005 for three seasons of the show when it was just relaunching. They relaunched with the ninth Doctor, and and this relaunch was led by Russell T. Davies, who is, I like to say, the most famous famous British TV writer who has not written for The Crown. Unless he has written for The Crown, I stopped watching at some point. But Russell T. Davies created Queer as Folk. He was a, a major force in British TV, a creator of one of my favorite weird miniseries, Years and Years. He's excellent. And he, the, mm-hmm. his heyday was the of Doctor Who was the David Tennant era. And then Russell T. Davies obviously has done many other things since 2005. So he left the show. They've had other showrunners like Stephen Moffat and other well-known British writers. But Russell T. Davies is returning to sort of reboot and reset the show. And his grand return is to bring back many people's, myself included, favorite take on the doctor for a series of uh specials because like all british shows when they don't have a whole season done they're like here's a special there's a special here are three specials in a row are three specials in a row a season when a full season's only like nine episodes i don't know but we're doing a series of specials the first two have already aired on disney plus the third is right around the corner and they are about uh the doctor returning to the face of the 10th Doctor, David Tennant's face, but he is now the 14th Doctor and has had more experiences, so he's a bit of a different character. But they are reuniting him with one of his favorite companions, one of my favorite companions as well, the the companions, the sidekicks who fly around in the police box with him. And this is a woman named Donna Noble on the show, played by the wonderful British comedian Catherine Tate, who had an excellent season of Doctor Who with David Tennant back in the day that, uh, light spoiler, ended with them having to part ways. That that happens to all the sidekicks. But she loses her memory of that time. And it is historically in the Doctor Who community been a controversial way to end that, that stretch because it meant that she didn't get to remember her adventures with him. And so Russell T. Davies, what does he do? He returns and finds a way to reunite them. And if you're a Doctor Who fan who hasn't seen these specials yet, I'll leave it there so you have to wonder, how does that work? Uh, And it works. It's fun. It brings back this kind of lighthearted, corny, and then occasionally spooky, because sometimes they they show they can do horror pretty well, uh, vibe that Doctor Who is good at. So there's like a new season and several specials that people can watch, which is probably what, like, for British television, like 46 minutes of viewing time altogether. Yeah, you know, like timey-wimey things. They're, they're kind of sometimes 48 minutes, sometimes an hour and change. Sure, okay. It's Disney+. Mm-hmm. Plus. They can be whatever length they want to be. Uh, but they're they're culminating in what will clearly be the end of the David Tennant era part two, and then the reveal of the 15th Doctor, who will carry the show forward. Exciting. What is most interesting, perhaps, if you are a Synergy fan like myself, is the problem that Disney has here. 
Because as I said, the new specials and the new season will be on Disney Plus all over the world, except, again, the UK. However, no, who, who do you think? Who do you think has the rights to the old seasons? All of the seasons leading up to this that might be helpful context if you're new to Doctor Who. Netflix? Guess again. Someone you're less likely to have. Paramount Plus? Okay, who not that less likely. Let's split the difference there, Diane. It's Max, baby! It's everyone's favorite app. The Max app. Oh, they really messed up. Yeah! And obviously, the Max deal for the existing seasons pre-existing. And Disney clearly didn't have the leverage or cash on hand, the latter probably, uh, to buy it out. And so it is just weird. I watched the first of these new specials, and it began with this awkwardly inserted sort of previously on to be like, what is going on here, man? I do think that this makes sense for Max. It's a good play for Max to have this. Yeah, that's the thing is Max can just sit there and go, you say there will be new buzz about Doctor Who? Interesting. We have that. Yeah, and then after you're done with Doctor Who, maybe you want to watch some Harry Potter. Hopefully, you'll just get stuck in the Max app, lost in the Max app. You might wind up in that sports tab or the CNN Max beta. You could just get trapped in the Max app forever. Kind of like being stuck in a a deep part of the universe with the Doctor. It is marginally better than Netflix having it all. Fair. And, And you know... That is unfortunately where we will have to leave it because we do need to talk about the biggest Disney synergy news of the week, the month, the year. It is time to talk about what is going on with Hulu. Oh my God, we're having a fire sale. That's right, Hulu. Finally, sort of, kind of, inside Disney+, Plus, some exceptions may apply. Diane, have you had an opportunity to use the Hulu Hub beta in Disney+. Plus? I did. Um, it was pretty much functional. I uh, opened my Disney+, Plus and the um, top bar where you would usually see, like, the hot new Disney Plus show, usually like your big Marvel show that's out or your big Star Wars show that's out, um, was an ad for Hulu. I clicked it. It brought me to Hulu for the same account. Um, I have Disney Plus without ads and Hulu with ads, and that is exactly how it functioned. Um my Hulu still had ads. It did take a while for Hulu to load. I was getting a bit of that pinwheel slowness and I got very nervous uh, that it wasn't going to work, but eventually it did load. And then it just brought me back like I was right at the homepage of a Hulu app. That is a decent uh, experience. That's not terrible. I I have not had a chance to partake yet because my Disney Plus login and my Hulu login might be different email addresses. But 
I'm sure there are many folks yeah. for whom that is the case. Yeah, and that, that's the thing is this will only appear for you at this moment if you have the same email address login for both of them. That's the only way they know how to link it right now. And, and there is no other option at the moment. So even if they're both your own email address, sorry, you can't tell them that I am both of these email addresses. You have to have accounts with the same email address. And then the Hulu Hub will automatically appear inside your Disney Plus app. Uh, but there, there are some catches. There is a reason they're calling this a beta, and that the full experience, quote-unquote, will launch in March of 2024. Uh, one of the biggest ones that caught my eye is... Uh, they, it will not sync your progress. So if you watch yeah. some of Fargo on Hulu, but then you try to pick up where you left off in the Hulu hub on Disney+, Plus, it will play you the first episode of Fargo. That was my exact experience, but I just, you know, let them know where I was and it caught up quickly. Then when I go back into it now, it does say in Disney Plus that my next episode of Fargo will be the next episode of Fargo. But when I go back to Hulu and try to watch Fargo, it wants to play me the episode that I already saw. Oh, that is going to drive people crazy. But I I understand that is a complicated back-end thing that they say they're working on. Part of why they want to brand this as a beta. This is the soft launch, and I think that's a smart way to do it. Don't try to have everything all perfect on day one. Admit that this is going to be a gradual merging process. But if it's in beta, why does everyone have it? That's not what beta means. Well, beta means it's not finished. It's still a work in progress that they are letting you generously test for them for free. What a nice program that is. You're welcome, Bob. Yeah, Bob, Bob is really thankful. Uh, and there are some things that they say will uh, change as it comes out of beta, and some things that will not. The biggest and and perhaps the number one uh, wow moment of this announcement is that due to existing licensing agreements, some shows will never ever appear in the Hulu Hub and you will have to use the Hulu app to watch them, including the example that everyone is citing, Modern Family, a hit ABC sitcom that for licensing reasons is not allowed to appear in the Disney Plus version of Hulu. Perhaps ever. That's wild to me because that show actually makes sense as a Disney show. Oh, absolutely. Whereas something like, you know, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, I can watch on Hulu within Disney. Yeah. Yeah. The other example everyone's citing is Love Island. <laughs> that has some, some licensing arrangement that prohibits it. it, it there, there's just, you have to remember, all of these existing deals and some of them will never allow this. Then add on the thing that I always knew they were going to say, and they have now confirmed, which is Hulu with live TV, their over-the-top cable replacement package. They have no idea how to cram that into the Disney Plus app and are basically hinting that that may never, ever come to the Disney Plus app. That might be the reason Hulu has a standalone app forevermore. Right. I don't know how they're going to handle this. I, I'm very curious because it seems like eventually they would want to sunset Hulu or like just make it within Disney, not keep it separate. Will Disney Plus at some point have Disney Plus live TV? 
May, maybe like one direction is one day you finally get that tech into the Disney Plus app and then you rebrand Hulu with live TV as Disney with live TV. The the other direction this could go is Hulu eventually becomes the brand for live TV and Disney Plus mm-hmm. is the streaming on demand brand. The other direction is that they just leave it as confusing as possible for as long as possible because there's so many like technical reasons that it's like this. You have to remember, Hulu is older than some children who can drive cars at this point. I think that's true. If that's not true, it feels that way. Hulu is ancient from the early primordial era of streaming. And so it has a lot of technical debt, they call it. It's just built differently. There is a great article in Fast Company, a bit of a softball article, but still really interesting, where they talk to some of the people on the technical side at Disney about the challenge of merging these libraries and these services. And this one example I want to call out, uh, they said, in Hulu, a video asset has five pieces of art that describe it, like the poster, the little thumbnail, the big thumbnail, the cover image. On Disney Plus, each each show has 27 pieces of art attached to it. Never mind that the metadata is all classified differently, and you might remember from this past spring and summer, Max got into a ton of hot water for messing up their metadata transition when they were citing uh, you know, producers and directors and writers all under the same credit line simply because the tech stack they were using didn't have separate fields for it. There are these small but important details that are baked so deeply into these services that to actually merge them completely is a huge undertaking. Imagine if Hulu just exists in perpetuity for live TV and Modern Family. And Love (laughs) Island. And Love Island. Let's be clear. Uh, My other question around the the future of the Hulu brand there is uh, some of the other details about what is on the roadmap for the Disney Plus Hulu hub. Because right now, it is sort of what I predicted but didn't want to see, which is that Hulu is just a tile equal to Star Wars or Marvel, which, as I said on our last episode, I don't like that conceptually because Hulu is so massive. And Marvel and Star Wars are so small by comparison, so focused on a single franchise. Uh, And so I I initially thought, I don't like the idea of Hulu being demoted, let's say, to the same size as such specific, let's say, brands next to it, where Hulu is a huge umbrella brand. However, there's a devil's advocate to this, which is on their roadmap. They say in, uh, ideally, March 2024, when they come out of beta, they will actually separate hubs for some of the brands within Hulu, the most obvious example being FX. And yeah, a big lingering question through all of this has been, wither FX? FX, this storied brand of some of the best prestige dramas, especially of the last like 10, 15 years. What will happen to FX? I I have wondered this every season of The Bear. When The Bear, an FX show, never airs on FX and is branded FX on Hulu. What is FX on Hulu if not a gateway to eliminating FX? Well, it turns out it might be a gateway to eliminating Hulu as a brand because FX is going to get their own hub. It's wild that you say that FX is the home of these story dramas because it is, but it also is the home of like adult comedy right now. 
um, and including the bear, which I will remind you is technically a comedy. A comedy. <laughs> sure it is. Sure. It's a laugh riot, and you know it. Uh, but, he, I mean, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. It's like on, like, season 27 or whatever. Yeah, and all of that, and what we do in the shadows, which we reviewed this past summer, and e- even though some of those are on FXX now, all of it is FX, and and there isn't going to be a separate FXX tile. It's all going to be regrouped under FX, which is great news for FX and its longevity as a brand. In a way, another step towards perhaps getting it on par with the brand recognition of HBO, you know? The HBO now just qualities there. It is. It is. When we get to Fargo, I have an open question of would Fargo be a bigger sensation if it was just HBO branded instead of FX branded? Change nothing except that brand name on it. I think more people would be obsessed with Fargo. And I do think it is a, a smart move for Disney to make sure that they elevate that brand and separate it from Hulu, which, as we've mentioned, also contains Modern Family and Love Island, which do not necessarily reflect the FX brand. No, I agree with that. I, I think that's a great point. One of the other details here that is interesting is, is to your question of do you put Disney into Hulu? Long run, do you put Disney into Hulu? And the answer is long run, yes. Which is, again, another vote towards they're never getting rid of the Hulu app ever, and they aren't going to waste any money or manpower trying to take the live TV service and cram it into the Disney app. This just reads to me like, we know we're not going to do that. So what we will tell you is that we plan on putting The Mandalorian in Hulu someday and they are super vague about when that would be that is not on the roadmap for march 2024 but that is essentially the goal that they're they're striving for and i think part of that goal is something that is on the roadmap for march 2024 which is right now only hulu disney combo subscribers like diane will see the hulu hub and the hulu content inside of disney plus but starting next year Everyone will see the Hulu content inside of Disney+, Plus, whether you want to see it or not. And why? Because they want to upsell you to Hulu. Like, they want you in the bundle, just like Paramount Plus is going to show you Yellow Jackets and then be like, whoops, that's only available if you have Paramount Plus with Showtime. Do you want to upgrade to Paramount Plus with Showtime? Well, that's going to be the same story for the bear coming next year. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Someone's going to be already having Disney Plus. They're watching it with their kids. They finish up The Mandalorian. They see an ad for The Bear. They're like, oh, I heard that was good. I should check it out. Oops, I have to pay $5 more a month. You've already got my credit card info. That's right. At that point, too, they don't have to worry about payment systems or, you know, storefronts that they might belong to, like Roku or, or whatever. Uh, they'll just say, we already have your payment info on file for Disney+. Plus. Do you want to add on the Hulu add-on? And one day, that might even extend to ESPN and sports. It could, but are they going to do that if they don't have the live feature? <laughs> 
Honestly, probably, why not? And then tell you you have to flip over to the Hulu with Live TV app to watch it. Well, I don't see why they can't just upsell you and then make you download another thing. But the key here is they're going to make you download another thing. And they promise at some point it will sync your progress between them. So in theory, it won't be as obnoxious as that sounds. But long term, the question people have been asking all fall is, well, which app is going to die, man? Disney's going to die and be replaced by Hulu? No, Hulu's going to die and be replaced by Disney. No, sweet children. The correct answer is that nothing ever dies except Quibi. (laughs) So true. Well, I personally am excited for these changes, but they are not exciting enough to make me change my Disney-Hulu lifestyle at the moment. If they had to combine at some point, I could see that, and I, I will check it out. But the the long story short here is, they only have to combine if you want them to combine. Until, I guess, they start showing you content you're not paying for, and then you'll be angry. But that that's just the breaks. Them's the breaks, guys. Or... The angle of press in terms of this release, I think this was really smart. They didn't announce it was coming and then crashed their system by having everyone trying to get onto Hulu at the same time from their Disney app. They didn't have anyone prepared to write like a scathing review of, like we all did when Max came out. I think that, you know, just saying, oh, it's here now, but it's in beta is actually very smart. Yeah, and it also, I think, alleviates some of the concerns we've talked about before around the family-friendly side of Disney. How do you make sure that this plays well in the most touchy family market of them all, the U.S. market, where people freak out about anything Disney does, if it, even if that is just a lackluster gay look in a CGI comedy for children. That, that is, you know, the culture that Disney has to deal with is, we, we are going to rock the boat, but gently, so slowly and so gently that you'll have time to adjust and learn how to turn on the parental controls so your kids don't watch Fargo. Don't let your kids watch Fargo. Unless your kids are cool kids, because they're going to love it. (laughs) And that's what we're going to talk about right now. But first, before you go, oh no, I haven't seen season five yet, relax. We are going to talk about seasons one through four of Fargo and give you a quick, uh, let's say, tier list. But I'm not going to do the letters because it's too much work. We're just going to tell you which seasons of Fargo are a good entry point. Or perhaps, if you're a lapsed Fargo fan, it has been three years since the last season. What's a good season to go back and just taste that sweet Fargo goodness? That's what we're going to talk about right now. Diane, I have to start this by asking, are you as appalled as I am to learn that season one of Fargo originally aired in 2014? You must be wrong. You just simply must be mistaken. It gets worse. Spring of 2014, Fargo the TV show is almost a decade old. That, That can't be right. 
I know, it's weird, man. But it is such a good show. And uh, it's an anthology, which gives it the freedom to have these long gaps between seasons. Last week, we talked, at least I talked, about how I thought one of the flaws of the current interconnected Marvel strategy is that there's too much space between the interconnected installments. Ms. Marvel was too long ago. I don't feel the momentum into the Marvels. Fargo doesn't have to worry about that, because even though, in theory, all five of these seasons take place in the same universe, they are all set at least several years apart, in some cases decades apart, and they have completely different casts and completely different capers each season. So you can pick any one of them as your entry point, and then watch the others in whatever order really strikes your fancy. Yeah, and even if you miss a whole season, you're okay. Yeah, if you just watch a couple episodes of a particular Fargo season, let's say hypothetically season four of Fargo, and you go, I don't like the vibe, that's just fine. You don't have to finish that season. You will still be able to watch the next season. No complaints. Okay, so here's where I have to fess up. I I didn't see season four. I saw... <gasps> the first episode of season four this is also absolutely absurd because fargo is basically my favorite television show so at least that's on the air now i don't know the americans is right there i don't know seinfeld's right there it's really hard okay but anyways it's right there so it's in the conversation i started watching it i was busy it seemed like it was slightly more work um, for Coen Brothers fans, I think that this is like the Miller's Crossing of the Fargo universe season four. Uh, and I, I just never finished it. I haven't seen it. I don't know what happens. I'm well into season five and completely absorbed. And I don't know at all what happens in season four. So I'm just coming out to say it. I'm not proud of the fact. I'm in fact a little ashamed. But you know what? This is my truth. And, and I'm sharing it with you all. Thank you for sharing your truth, Diane. For those of you at home wondering, what does that mean? Well, season four of Fargo is set in the year 1950, and season five of Fargo is set in the year 2019. So there is not a lot of overlap, plot-wise, between those seasons. And uh, really, what, we, what I would say as we kind of get to the first four seasons of Fargo and a little bit about each, um, season four is probably the least critically acclaimed, though it is still well regarded overall, and it is the one set furthest in the past. Uh, season two is set in 1979, and that was previously the furthest in the past it went. I think season four takes a big swing towards trying to take the same Fargo themes, Fargo vibes, and take them to their limit, sort of, to the most extreme, different uh, locale, different time period uh, that they could. And I personally uh, agree with Diane, it's easy to bounce off season four. I, I watched the whole thing, but of all the seasons of Fargo, uh, season four would be at the bottom of my tier list, and it's the one I am least interested in rewatching because... I got I got the full flavor of it. I respect it for what it was trying to do. And it's got some great performances. Every season of Fargo has a stacked cast. But it's the one that is least Fargo to me. And what is Fargo? It's a feeling. It's, it's a vibe of violent black comedy, slapstick murder. That is the vibe of Fargo. 
it's the Coen brothers aesthetic uh, yeah. condensed into a TV show because it's not just Fargo's aesthetic um, no. for for fans of 1996 Fargo. It's not just that it, they really did pull from the whole of the Coen brothers work, I think. And I will say that I love the Coen brothers. Some of their films are some of my favorite films, but not every one of their films hits for me quite the same way, um, which makes sense. They have, they're prolific. Um, but uh, I, I, and I, that's not even me saying that I don't like season four because I don't know that that's the case. I just yeah. wasn't as pulled in by it as I have been with the other ones where I turn it on, I cannot look away. And I'm like gasping for breath until each episode ends. Yeah. And so I think what we'll do here is we'll move from the bottom of our lists up to the top. So uh, as we uh, move on from season four, I will give you the pitch on season four. It is set in the 1950s. Specifically, it's set in 1950. Uh, In Kansas City, Missouri, it's the furthest south any season of Fargo is set. And the main... uh, protagonist antagonist to each other they are kind of equal parts are jason schwartzman and chris rock an interesting pairing i do feel like their their acting styles didn't mesh as well perhaps as one could hope but they each bring great performances as dueling members of dueling crime families in kansas city trying to strike a detente that spoiler alert goes horribly horribly wrong our next ranking and the one after will be the most controversial between the two of us. I'm very curious what you'll put next. Okay, so as we're moving up, what is my third favorite season of Fargo? Uh, this is hard for me. I just started re-watching season one and am reminded how much I love season one. But I am going to put season one as my third favorite season of Fargo. That is correct. That is correct. Thank you. It's a, it's it's hard because it's very good. And when it hits, it's so, so good. Like there are moments, particularly later in the season, I'm excited for you on your rewatch, uh, that are just exquisite. But oh, um, yes, it won the Golden Globe for best miniseries that year. It was a knockout hit in 2014 when it premiered. And at the time, too, no one quite knew what to expect from a TV series called Fargo. They didn't say, like, well, it's going to be a multi-season anthology set in various time periods around the Midwest. They they were just like, it's Fargo, the TV show. I thought that it would be mediocre, but that I might still like it because it was going to appeal to my interests as a Fargo fan. Like, as someone who loves the movie, I was like, okay, well, this will probably be, like, mid-tier, but I'll still enjoy it. No, 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 no. It's doing so much more. It's the best acting on television. The writing is incredible. Oh, I'm so excited to be talking about this show. Yeah, and we should take a moment, as as we will get to anyway, but why not call it out now? The writing, Noah Hawley is the creator of mm. uh, Fargo, the TV show, and he has said in recent interviews around the return of season five that, you know, even though he has many other projects to work on, he is a prolific uh, showrunner at this point. 
Fargo keeps pulling him back. And and in a way, you get the sense that to him, it's sort of a, a privilege, a dream come true, that they keep asking him to revisit this. That it was already, like, you know, kind of hitting the jackpot to be offered the job of writing the first season and show running the first season of Fargo when it was just a kind of, you know, gamble to say, what if we took the Coen brothers aesthetic and made it a prestige drama? And, and he has gotten to do that five times now. And that is, you can tell he both loves it and still has a creative inspiration behind it because each season finds a way to reinvent the same the same wheel in some ways. Uh, and also, I want to point out, starting around season three, he began directing especially the premieres of each season and that you can see him setting the visual tone and the visual style of the show more clearly and, and and a little more experimentally in some cases as the series goes on. Agreed. And I have so much respect for him in the sense that he is taking these big swings. And maybe for me, they don't hit every time, like I said, season four, blah, blah, blah. But it, I like that he could be resting on his laurels and saying, this is an established genre at this point. I could just, you know, kind of phone it in. But no, he's saying, how can we approach this in a new way? New time, new characters, and really, you know, an expansion of the aesthetic each time in a really, really exciting way. So um, just... uh, all of my hats off to Mr. Holly. Yeah, and and all of my hats off to season one of Fargo. Saying it's my third favorite of the first four is not an insult. It is an excellent season, and it stars Billy Bob Thornton and Martin Freeman, as well as Allison Tolman and Colin Hanks. It is a, a killer ensemble, and I forgot until I did this rewatch how central and menacing Billy Bob Thornton is as the main a villain, so to speak. Is anyone good or bad on Fargo? Hard to say. But, uh, well, Alison Tolman's good. But, you know, uh, they're good. He's pure evil. Is he? Is he just because he kills everyone and inspires other people to kill? Does that really make him pure evil? Yeah, I, I think he's not a human. He's an embodiment of evil. That is a theme of Fargo. Thank you. Uh <laughs> But, man, he's so good at it. I want to watch him do it all the time. Absolutely captivating. In some ways, I think season one is the most black and white of the seasons. Like, yes, Billy Bob Mm -hmm. is meant to be pure evil, though you love to watch him do it. And Allison Tolman and Colin Hanks's uh, law enforcement characters from Bemidji and Duluth are meant to be the embodiments of people trying to do good in the world. And in the middle, you have a bunch of people trapped kind of bouncing between good and evil uh, occasionally and sometimes fatally, falling to their more evil impulses. Yes, often. I I find that really captivating about that show, too. I do think sometimes I'm put off by shows that have uh, police figures at their center for a whole host of reasons that don't really, they're not really the subject of this podcast. But I will say that I think that this show offers enough humanity to the cop characters and enough different kinds of cops and investigators and sheriffs that it doesn't really matter where you fall on cops or cop shows. You don't have to be a person that likes a cop show to like Fargo. 
Yeah, they they feel generally more like detectives in the Sherlock Holmes sense than they do like cops in a law and order sense, you know? Uh, I agree with that, but I do think you also see like you're sort of like beat police officers in there too yeah and they're they're more working streets they're they're not detective level actually but they are (laughs) sleuthing out the case and they are often the kind of blue collar uh less less um let's say less glorified versions of police where often on tv we see the more glorified versions of of the job yeah, I think the Frances McDormand character in the original movie is sort of a blueprint for Alison Tolman's character, certainly, but for at least one character per season who is usually underestimated um, and dealing with a lot of challenges, but uh, surprisingly bright and sort of rising to the occasion. And watching that character solve crimes is really enjoyable. Absolutely. And uh, just for the record, as we move on, season one is set in uh 2006 and 2007. So uh, again, as we move around, you'll see the show has a certain way of tapping into the recent history vibe that I think is very successful. Uh, But that brings us to second favorite season of Fargo. Diane, it's your turn. Is it season two or season three? Hard choice, I know. It is a hard choice, but at the same time, it's not. Uh, It's season three for me, which is an excellent season of television. It it really is. It's outstanding. I love that in this one, I think they took more big risks in season three. There's aliens. There's screenwriters. It has some Barton Fink, again, for the Coen heads out there. Um, it, it It satisfies by... Um, moving in new directions, which I think the show needed to do. Yeah, and it has two Ewan McGregors. It has Ewan McGregor playing twin brothers who are both involved in the caper, but from very different directions. And it has my personal favorite kind of quote-unquote pure embodiment of evil character that they've had so far, which is uh, David Thewlis as VM Varga, a absolutely menacing and delightful presence through all of season three. His teeth are so hard to look at on this. They've done something to them. Uh, I, I don't know what they did, but it's um, you can't look away and you can't look right at them. So scary. Yeah, yeah. In he... that sense, the show has elements of fairy tale. Really, you know, it's it's like uh, heightened in the sense that he is like almost a big bad wolf. And you see him coming the way he moves. You imagine the way he smells like there's something about him that seems animal. And it's really primally frightening in a way that I think not all TV shows are able to capture, even if they might have suspenseful moments, which is why it's not just like a Sherlock Holmesy mystery. It's also delving into suspense and even horror. Yeah, actually, well said. And I don't want to spoil any more of season three. It is a delight which means we have to get to our favorite of the first four seasons, the one that I would say, if you're going to pick one, this is the one to pick. It is season two of Fargo, set in 1979, that is uh, defined for me always by Jean Smart and her role as the matriarch of an old-school, like, upper Midwestern crime family. Love it. She's great. But for me, it's all, oh, Kirsten, my Kirsten. Mm. 
Kirsten Dunst and uh, Jesse Plemons as husband and wife who kind of unwittingly stumble into a, uh, again, a kind of organized crime war going on. And, and they do it in the premiere of that season by accidentally killing Kieran Culkin. Do you remember Amazing. that the person they kill is Kieran Culkin? It's mm. and we haven't even mentioned yet Patrick Wilson or Ted Danson, who also premiere and uh, feature uh, largely in this season of Fargo. It is of of a show that has stacked casts every season. This is the cast that is like my dream Fargo cast. Oh, it's so good. Top to bottom, just outstanding. Um, Bokeem Woodbine um, as Mike Milligan in that season. It, the the hitman who is um, part of the crime family. Uh, or no, he's not part of the crime family. He's like, a t- see, I need to rewatch season he's two. He's up from, Can- he's working with Kansas City, which is a, a, a nod to what comes in season four. It is. Oh my God, he's so good. Um, I wish they would give him a spinoff and then... There's Nick Offerman. There is Bruce Campbell playing Ronald Reagan. Oh, my God. Elizabeth Marvel, Brad Garrett, Kristen Milioti. So many excellent actors all over that season. You just cannot walk through an episode of that season without tripping over an amazing actor. Who's the incredible native actor? Zahn McLaren. Oh, my God. He's so good. Yes, he is. Yet another... Excellent cast member in that season. That season is so good. And it is the one that is uh, least modern besides season four (laughs) and is set in 1979, which gives it just enough distance from modern day to feel like a really good period piece. Though I will say, I love how uh, Noah Hawley can make 2006 or 2019 feel like a period piece as we get to season five i have to say there is something dangerous and impressive about his decision to set it so recently but it really speaks to how much time has passed since then yes oh Mm, mm. i don't want to i want to give people a chance if you are now deeply intrigued by fargo and you want to go into season five blind that's okay You can pause this episode, save it, put it in your back pocket, and listen to it. We're only going to discuss the first four episodes of season five. That's all that's aired so far, and the show is running through the beginning of 2024. So you have plenty of time if you want to get a taste of what's going on and why I might put season five in the number two spot on my list so far. And it it could make a case for number one by the end. You will have to join us as we continue this discussion about mm, Fargo. Okay, let's just dispense with the cold hard facts. Season 5 of Fargo stars Juno Temple and John Hamm, along with Jennifer Jason Leigh, Joe Keery from Stranger Things, and... Canada's national treasure, Dave Foley, along along with some other delightful people, but I have to stop the list somewhere. And it is set in 2019. Again, we are in the Minnesota area, this time Scandia, Minnesota. And just to establish, I think, the vibe this season is going for, it opens, the, pi- the premiere of season five opens with a slow motion school board fist fight just all-out brawl at a school board meeting, mostly played in exquisite slow motion. You have 
no idea what's going on. And Juno Temple is there, and she is with her uh, daughter, clearly, and is trying to get out of this meeting for some reason, and in the process, tases somebody, and then accidentally tases a police officer and gets taken into booking and gets, you know, she doesn't, she, she has to spend a couple hours in, in the slammer because she tased a police officer who, to be fair, spooked her by touching her from behind while she was in a brawl. So you feel for her, but also she did tase a police officer. In that scene, I was wondering how political the show would go because uh, when you think about uh school board meetings in the year of our Lord 2023, they are a hot topic. And I was wondering, are we going to get into things like book bans or whatever? And while they brush past that as an issue, um, it's not where the season is going. And I, for the most part, am relieved, at, at least of the first four episodes, that that's not where it is. For me, this is one of the most frightening seasons of Fargo so far. Yeah, I have some mortal terror around many of the characters, and we're mm-hmm. only four episodes in. The The other element I think of that recency is, is that they know that we understand that a school board fight could turn contentious. It is not relevant why this one did. And that is some of the beauty of the period piece vibes that the show can pull out of something that's only four years old. I I think some of it certainly is like pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. Sure, it feels like a million years have passed. But some of it is also playing on the fact that these are still relevant issues today. And so you can tell someone, well, there was a fistfight at the school board meeting. And they might go, why? But you can say to them, that's not relevant. It's about what Juno Temple did next. And you go, okay, sure. I don't need it. it yeah. It is, honestly, I probably don't want to know why they were having a fist fight at the school board meeting. It would probably upset me. And it's not relevant to the story and these characters. Agreed. And as far as the like ripped from the headlines type feeling of it being inspired by true events, right? If this were a Dick Wolf show, it would be about the school board meeting and the violence and whatever spurred that, right? But instead, it's actually is still about something that is rooted in the news where you think of John Hamm's character on the show. Uh, Okay, the spoiler alert has been given. You can spoil. Okay, we have learned that he is a sheriff in a remote part of the country who has incredible power and is running like a pseudo cult type thing. Um, Just uh, has like enormous power in this region. And Juno Temple is his former wife who he's coming to kidnap. Now, that doesn't sound like it's topical, but in the sense that there are these like small sects of the country that are ruled by sheriffs and uh, sort of, outside of federal law that is something that is like current and topical yeah and and they play with that same you know uh current and topical themes with uh, juno temple's character trying to basically hide her past from everyone in her new life because she fled her marriage with john ham's sheriff character like over a decade ago by the time this the show starts she 
fled to Scandia, Minnesota, where she reinvented herself as Dorothy, and she married this nice man who comes from a lot of money, which is, he's the son of Jennifer Jason Lee's extremely wealthy, extremely conservative character. And she settled down and had a child and decided to reinvent herself. And the the uh, spark of this season, and as is always true with these seasons of Fargo, the spark is often a small thing that triggers a much bigger thing. And in, in this case, it's that she gets taken in and gets fingerprinted and gets her mugshot taken because she tased that police officer. And then they, they drop the charges about tasing the police officer, but suddenly her fingerprints are in the system, and John Hamm's character is a sheriff who can look these things up in the system, and Joe Keery plays his son, Gator, who can look these things up as well, works as a deputy for him, because, you know, it's all in the family, and they figure out where Dorothy is for the first time since she fled, and she gets wind of this, and through a series of early, scary, violent, exciting fight scenes, we see him go after her. After, to be clear, she already has an extremely riveting sequence where they kidnap her and she gets free, and then in a shootout involving a state trooper, she manages to escape. All of this leading to, and again, we're only four episodes in, a scene that was in some of the trailers for this season, where the state trooper who was in the shootout with her, he gets injured, but he survives. She winds up essentially saving his life by killing the person who was there to murder both of them. Uh, because, again, she escaped being kidnapped. So, you know, they were there to murder her, but he was there too. She saves his life, and when he finally meets her again, she denies ever having met him, ever having any of that happen. And Dave Foley, who plays the family lawyer, really works for Jennifer Jason Lee's wealthy character, but is defending the whole family here. He says, well, we have our own set of facts. And without saying the phrase alternative facts, you know exactly what, uh, you know, part of the culture we are referencing here. And it is so interesting and so well executed to see a show that goes, yeah, it's not about that, but that is a theme. And it is not just one angle of it. We're not just saying, well, like, yeah, John Hamm's character, the bad sheriff, he uses alternative facts to get his way. We're saying the heroine you're rooting for, Juno Temple's character, who's trying to get away from this all, she's using alternative facts in her own way. Mm. And beyond that sort of topical point, which I think is absolutely something that they were doing intentionally. I love the way that this season is handling the question of finances and class. Um, and I think they're doing that in a way that the other seasons haven't, or like more explicitly than the other seasons. And the intersection of gender and class has been really interesting for me. Um, because part of the reason that she is vulnerable to this is because it was her former husband, um, which to me, you know, brings up all sorts of contemporary issues politically uh, with what's happening to women in our country right now. But um, the way that there's a character who is hired by John Hamm, John Hamm's Roy Tillman, the sheriff, um, named, I think his name is Ole Munch. 
They, they said know. Munch in the fourth episode. We were debating, has anyone said his name out loud? And I don't know if anyone said his first name, but they have said Munch now. So we can definitively say it's old Munch, probably. Yeah, Ole or Ole Munch, he's incredible. And he seems to be somewhat Scandinavian. Uh, he's a hitman who was sent um, by Joe Carey's character to kill her. He's the or, or kidnap her. her. That was the original kidnapping. And, and in that kidnapping, they told they told him she's just this woman, a housewife. You're, you're, a housewife. You're just capturing a housewife. But of course, she is more than just a housewife. She fights her way and and uh, kills. Well, she deeply injures one of the kidnappers. And then when the cops arrive, that other kidnapper gets killed, and she is able to escape Munch. And Munch goes back to Roy Tillman, John Hamm's character, and basically says, "You." screwed this up by not preparing us for what a tiger she is. And when John Hamm's character, foolishly but understandably, tries to kill off Munch in order to get rid of this loose end, Munch goes rogue. It's great. I mean, he wants what he's due. And we have some of my favorite parts of this season so far, which I have to be honest and say that I don't know exactly what's happening in all of the munch scenes but i'm fascinated by them and drawn in the The scene that cuts back to like 1599 like old england yes what so what i think that what's happening and part of this is me reading things online too so okay i'm that person uh i didn't see season four and i read things online about tv okay is that he's a, a sin eater which is something that um, people would hire at funerals to uh, like metaphorically eat the sins of the wealthy. And I, so that, you know, yeah. again, plays into the themes of the season. There's a, this scene in Wales in the 16th century, and he's um, eating, a, eating a plate of some kind of disgusting food above a dead body. And clearly the um, family or or acquaintances of, of the wealthy person who's died um, are looking upon him with disdain. Yeah, they're grossed out. Yeah. And then we also see him um, at different points in, in engaging in what looks like some sort of blood ritual um, where he's covering his body in like dirt and blood and sacrificing an animal and uh this seems to be part of his plot for revenge on Tillman. Yeah, and Tillman subscribes to a very specific interpretation of Christianity that that he really believes Jesus is his buddy, his protector. And we see this in some of the scenes, and he clearly is framing Munch as an agent of the devil. Mm-hmm. And what... What I think is really interesting about this season uh, compared to season one, and there are gradients of this through the whole series run, but season one, you have Malvo, the hitman played by Billy Bob Thornton, as essentially the embodiment of evil. And then you have Alison Tolman and Colin Hanks as the kind of embodiments of good. And then you have Martin Freeman and company stuck in between, kind of at the whims of their animal instincts. And the show is at a place now where it's not that simple, where instead we have, uh, you know, Juno Temple's character, who is 
both a good person, but also a violent person, hiding her past, lying to her family about her past. She booby traps her house in a way that at one point almost kills her husband. And and just by not telling him the truth, she's jeopardizing his safety and his their daughter's safety the whole time. Like, she is not pure, though you root for her. And then you have... You know, Roy Tillman, who you dislike deeply for a variety of reasons presented to you in the first few episodes. But when Munch comes in and, you know, ominously threatens Roy's family, you don't feel great about that. No one is pure right or pure wrong in that spectrum there. And Munch isn't one polar end or the other. He's an agent of chaos in the middle. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, he kind of reminds me of, okay, I'm sorry, I'm uh, throwing out more Coen Brothers references, but of the Nihilists in um, the bowling movie. <laughs> the Big Lebowski, the Nihilists, <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> right? Like, um, he, he's he got his own set of beliefs separate from them. He's like yeah. here to disrupt their simple paradigm i do think though that john ham's character is pretty pure evil oh uh, yeah i don't like him and i don't mean to make excuses for him but i i do think he is a different kind of villain versus the uh, munch malvo david thulis varga character he's a different kind of villain and they've managed to make it a more complicated triangulation of villainy I agree with that. I do. I but I think that um the way that he has like positioned himself as like a god upon the earth and um the, the what the show has to say about kings um as you know Roy means king um he has um assumed too much power for a man and I think that we're going to see him be brought low i think that will include um curses upon his family which you know i mean fargo uses a lot of biblical allegory as a show so i think that makes sense you know like we might see horrible things happen to innocence around him because of his hubris but i still think that um that he is not he's not the malvo character but he may be more related to like uh, the crime family in season two, where he yeah. has just gone uh, beyond his reach as a man and, and he'll suffer the consequences. Yeah. And there's also a lot in Fargo across all the seasons, but especially this season about institutions and, you know, him being the sheriff and they establish every member of his family. It's a you know almost a hereditary role to be the sheriff in that town. Uh, has been the sheriff. And they also establish that his son, Gator, doesn't seem up to the task. In in a truly wonderful, you know, dunce role uh, for Joe Keery from Stranger Things. I love seeing him in this. And, you know, there is a sense of something's going to change. This institution can't continue on in the way it was. And there's also this looming threat of he's in bed with some kind of local militia and has been using his powers as sheriff to get weapons for them. And he actually wants to slow the roll on that because it's getting a little too suspicious. But they want more. 
Meanwhile, some uh, FBI agents from the field office, I think it's in Fargo, they come in and they are just checking on him because he's not really enforcing the laws, a very 2019 vibe. And they, they want to know, like, what, what are you going to do? He, of course, blows them off. And in episode four, we get a great scene where these FBI agents go to their boss and they're like, we want to go after him. And the boss, I, you know, one of the two agents thinks the boss is in Roy's pocket, but the other one, I think, sees it more clearly, which is, what is there for the FBI, what is there for the FBI to gain as an institution in going to war with this small-time guy, except to lose face? And instead, if they wait him out, he will lose face, he, Roy Tillman, will lose all on his own. And there are some some moments there where the show, again, nods at, like, institutions are bigger than the individual people. And sometimes that's deeply frustrating for the individual people. But it is sort of how society continues on. Agreed. I think that there's a way that it, um, the show comments, uh, without explicitly commenting, but the, the way that the show deals with issues of... Um, the human's relation to society and to like the forces of nature or maybe the gods or something, you know, greater than us that feels um, mythological. And I love the way that they have taken the work of the Coen brothers and built sort of a um, compendium of like American mythologies. Yeah. Uh, Not that, not that, the only ones referenced are American because obviously, right, we have this Welsh character. We have some like sort of Norse influences, I feel. But it really seems like um, they are interrogating what the myth of America means through these violent stories about the smallest people, the people who you would run into at the laundromat and not give a second's look in Fargo, they are a Greek hero with a tragic flaw. Yeah. And I just find that, like, exhilarating. Oh, I could not have said it any better myself, Diane. That is the perfect note to end our Fargo discussion on. Season 5 has got me exhilarated, too. And listener, if you're a Fargo fan, or you're watching the new season and you have thoughts, tell us about it. Podcast at streamageddon.com. This was a jam-packed, synergy-packed episode. But we promise we have a little more for you before the end of the year. We are going to discuss Nathan Fielder's The Curse. And, just as a special holiday treat, we will be bringing you another little streaming superlative spectacular. It's coming soonish to your feeds, but this is our big holiday feast, so please tell us what you thought. One more time, it's podcast at streamageddon.com. We will see you here soon, dear listener, in the wonderful world of Disney-adjacent content. But until then, you know what you have to do. Diane, say it with me. Keep streaming. Nailed it.